0: When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people to Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him." And the people did not answer him a word. Morning fellowship. If you haven't turned there yet, please do turn to the book of First Kings as we continue our uh, series through the life and ministry of Elijah, a man like us, uh, but extraordinarily used of God to do great things, and that's my prayer for us this morning if you'd pray with me for, for that, that God would use us in extraordinary ways. Father, we know that what we bring to the table is nothing. It doesn't just pale in comparison to what you bring to the table in our relationship. There's nothing to be paled in comparison with. There's nothing that we bring. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. And no one of us in here is good. Because we're broken, fallen. And the image that you've placed on us of you is marred and damaged. And so it's in this moment that we're confronted with your word that reveals who you are. It reveals to us what God is like. And we recognize how desperately we need you and how desperately we need you to help us respond in appropriate ways to what you teach us in your word. So we ask that you would give us your grace so we can leave here morphed into your people Striving and pursuing Christ with every stride. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of her shows, Oprah Winfrey explained why she's not a mainline Christian. She's moved gradually from her upbringing in the Baptist church to a more New Age perspective. We pretty much all know that but she explained it in an interview or in a show. She said she was sitting in a Baptist church one day and the preacher was describing how God is. And she was amen go, God is great. Amen. You know, God is powerful. Amen. That's true. But then the preacher got to one attribute that the Bible makes clear that God is and that God is jealous. She said that doesn't make any sense. How could God be jealous? He's jealous of me? And so that she says, began her journey of reforming the Christian faith into a more of a new age perspective. She couldn't believe they were teaching that God is a jealous God. I just looked it up in the American Oxford Dictionary, jealous. And it has three definitions. The first one, feeling or showing envy of someone. Now That makes sense to say God isn't envious of someone. And then the second definition is feeling or showing suspicion of someone's unfaithfulness in a relationship. That's a common usage for the word jealous. Bible wouldn't make sense if God is jealous that you know that He doesn't have a spouse. He doesn't have. But the third definition I think is what the Bible gets at when it describes God as jealous, fiercely protective of one's rights and possessions. Now I don't want to give a a grammar lesson here, but, but listen up because this is important. That third definition is why the other two definitions exist. Fiercely protective of one's rights. Do you have a right to the sole fidelity of your wife? Yes, so when she cheats, you're jealous. Fiercely protective of one's rights and possessions. The first definition was feeling envy of someone. But jealousy and envy are a little bit different. Envy is, wow, I wish I had that. Jealousy is, hey, I should have that. There's a right To that thing that that other person has and you feel you should have it. That all comes from that third definition. The basic definition of jealousy is protective and zealous of one's own possessions. And God is a jealous God because he owns his people. And when we walk away, he's jealous of that. Not because, oh, I wish I had what they walked away. No, they, they, they should be with me. That's my right. That's my possession. And so that's why the first commandment of the 10 commandments is speaks to that jealousy. You shall have no other gods before me. Why God, you don't like to share? Right. I do not share worship. We rob God of this worship when we erect idols in our hearts. You know, I'm I'm someone that's pretty giving, I think, pretty sharing, and if you need a ride, I'll give you a ride. If you need help, I'll I'll put down what I'm doing, give you help. I I hope I'm pretty good at that. But when I'm at a restaurant and I order my food, and everybody around me is like, hey, can I have a bite? I'll pay someone to get their own plate. I'll give them money. Here, man, buy your own plate. Go ahead. No, I'm not hungry. Well, then you don't need my fries, do you? (laughs) I'm protective of that plate and it's silly because it's food and it's silly because um, it's really meaningless whether I share a fry or not and when you and I are jealous it's questionable or do I really have a right to that plate do I really have a right to not that's questionable but it's not questionable with God and he's not bickering about french fries This is about worship. This is about why you and I were created. We were created to worship him. He put that stamp of worship emblazoned on our hearts. We've got to worship something. And when we erect idols in our hearts, we rob God of worship. I need to share this clip from Mark Driscoll. He's a pastor in Seattle, pastor of Mars Hill Church. And listen to what he says about American idolatry. I was in in East India, a few years ago. It's out in the middle of nowhere. I'm walking down this dirt lane, and there's an altar there. And there's a shrine that is built, and there's chicken blood and feathers everywhere. There's idols as far as the eye can see. They worship everything that you could possibly imagine. I asked one of the pastor's wives who was planting a church in this rural village. I said to her, do you think you'll ever come to the United States and visit my country? She said, I did once. And I will never come again. I said, why? She said, because I cannot stomach the idolatry. As I'm standing next to the altar where chickens get whacked for apparently the chicken god, I'm thinking to myself, this is not what I was expecting to hear. I said, well, where are the shrines of false worship and idolatry in our culture? She said, your god is your stomach and you have restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams, and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television, and all the chairs in your home are lined up so that your family can gather around the altar and worship that God. And it dawned on me that idolatry is what we often see in someone else's culture. And in our culture, we just think it's the best pro shop. It's the steakhouse. We just think it's the place for you to go, get recreational sporting goods, movie theater. We just see it as entertainment and see it as a hobby. We see it as sport. We don't see it as religion. We don't see it as spirituality. We don't see it as idolatry. Now, before we think this is too harsh, we need to recognize something basic but crucial about what idolatry is. An idol is anything we allow to take the place of God in our hearts doesn't have to be a graven image. You don't have to make little plates of steamed white rice and put it before it every morning. It's anything in your heart that takes the place of God. And so our affections, our attention, our focus, our praise, our energies need to be consumed by God. Owned by God. He has exclusive rights to them. And there's nothing wrong with TV until it crowds out your affections for Jesus. There's nothing wrong with food until it becomes a fixation. There's nothing sinful about sports until you know more about the game's rule book than you do about the living word of God. Let me take this definition of idolatry a step further. Most forms of idolatry eventually lead back to the worship of yourself. Most forms of idolatry out there are simply a facade for self-worship. I mean, it looks like you're worshiping a little statue with a big belly hanging over his pants. But you're not worshiping that. Worshiping yourself. Ultimately, my false god is me. If I worship a graven image, who crafted it? Man did. And I'm a man. If I worship my wife because I will have no other gods before her, why her? Because she's mine. If I worship money because everything I do revolves around getting it, saving it, spending it, it's because it gives me power in this world. It gets me what I want. And you don't have to be wealthy for that to be true of you. If you're poor and you're striving for it and you're rich or you're rich and you're protecting it, it's all about the power that it lends you to live in this world the way you want to live. If you were to worship a mountain, let's say, it's because that's something I can look at. I can see it and wonder. It prompts feelings in me. I can see it. I, I, I. If you worship the God of rain or the God of war, it's because you want rain for your crops, for your money. It's because you want your side of the war to win. Me, me, me. The first act of idolatry was the bite of a piece of fruit. That forbidden fruit that... God made clear to Adam and Eve they weren't supposed to eat and the serpent came along and told her, you know, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Okay. Me. And so idolatry, let's put aside idolatry was back then when they had images. Idolatry is me and you. And the things that we prop up in our lives and chase after... And at the end of that trail, it winds back to chasing after ourselves and putting ourselves first. And God is dethroned in our hearts. We become idolaters whenever we put anything before God. We need to get that straight before we jump into this passage. And you and I are prone to idolatry because ultimately we seek to put ourselves before God. So this account in the life of Elijah was recorded for us. To show us how God dismantles idolatry and demands a decision for him. Let's look at the story in Elijah, or 1 Kings Elijah's confrontation with Ahab. In chapter 18, after Obadiah went and get, got Ahab, Ahab comes in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. Now, as I started with that introduction about idolatry, some of you probably started with, that's not me. I don't worship idols. I don't pray to statues. And then as I started unpacking a little bit, you're going, I I don't want to agree with that definition. That's not me. Hey, why are you trying to cause trouble with me? I'm not an idolater. Go talk to the people that worship statues. I just go to work. I go to baseball games. Why are you troubling me with this? And Ahab is trying to deflect it. Are, are, you, are you the trouble of Israel? Are you why there's a drought around you? You're the reason why there's no rain. He said, no, you're the reason why there's no rain. You're the drought of Israel because you abandon the commandments of the Lord. So we need to own what God is calling us out on. And then verse 19, he says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, Baal, the Baal God's wife, who eat at Jezebel's table. And then verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, And said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So he asked, they had to bring all of Israel and bring them before this mountain. Get all of the false prophets for Baal, all of the false prophets for Asherah, and bring them here because we're going to do a little challenge. We're going to do a little face-off, a little competition, a little comparison, a little contrast publicly. And as he gathers them, he wants to tell them that there's a problem in the land. And the problem is not that you have decided to disobey God and say, forget Yahweh, I'm going to worship Baal. That's not the problem. The problem is you're limping back and forth between the two as if that's okay. And God, the jealous God, is not okay with that. So why the word limping? It's a rare Hebrew word, but you can, when you're limping, you use the right leg, left leg, and it's this sort of, you're not walking confidently. You're kind of back, you're, you're forth, you're here, you're there, you're left, you're right. He's saying you've got one foot in, one foot out. And he says, that's that can't be. You need to choose. You need to choose. How long will you keep limping between do, different opinions? Two different, different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And so then Elijah he underscores the odds. He says that the people didn't answer him when he said that. And then verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And then he starts laying out, Okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. So they're preparing a the sacrifice. But put no fire on it. Put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, when he first started this, nobody had anything to say to him. But when he explained the little competition, the people answered, it is well spoken. In other words, good idea. Let's compare. And the reason why I think is because these people still believe that there was something to show for their worship. They didn't say, "Oh well, no, 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 our God can't rain fire. They go, you know what? Yeah, let's do that. Let's take Yahweh and let's take our idols and let's put them together and see the pros and the cons. Let's look at that pro-con list. Not understanding that there are no pros for idolatry. But they're still clinging to those things because they feel, they, 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 I mean, they know it disagrees with Moses' theology. They know it disagrees with the teachings that were brought down from the, the mountain and the Ten Commandments and all that. But in their hearts, they feel something different. In their hearts, they feel that this idolatry is worth something. It gives me something. It does something for me. So yeah, Elijah, let's compare. As God tears us away from our idols, we still try to point out what we think those things are worth. We make excuses. Oh, that's not my idol. That's just something I do all day. Instead of pray, instead of read your word. That's not my idol. That's just something I fixate on. That's not an idol. And it does something for me. I love music. I don't just, I have a poster of them in my room and look at it because I just like the music. You heard a celebrity died and you start crying. Oh. I can't believe so and so died, so many platinum albums. Ugh. And then you hear about a kid that got shot in Pilsen. Huh. The violence. Is that strange? I think that's retarded. That's sick. That's backwards. Because there's something about music, you don't just like the the fact that the musician does good music, you start, you get caught up in it, and you go to the concerts, and you learn about the life, and you go follow their tweets, and follow their Facebook. Oh, I forgot to do my quiet time, do you see? (laughs) They said, good idea, let's compare. And God wants to tear them away from these idols by showing them that it's futile and it's worthless. And so we continue reading the story in verses 25 and following. It says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. We're not going to go at the same time. I want to see you guys pray to your God. For you are many. There's only one of me and there's many of you. He's trying to show the odds. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Let your God do that. And they took the bull that was given them, these deluded, lost people. And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. I know something interesting I learned about this is this isn't the false prophets doing this. This is the people doing this. From morning until noon, O Baal, Answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Is that ironic? He's saying spiritually you're limping between two different things, and now they're physically limping around the altar trying to call upon this God that they're limping for. No one answered. No one said a thing. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now let's back up a second, because I don't want to—I don't want to skip this. God brought them to a place where they're limping around and crying out and praying. It brings them to a place where they where they recognize the desperation of idolatry. They've got to recognize that this is a desperate situation. It's bringing them nothing. And they're, so they're limping around and he starts making fun of them. Why don't you cry louder? Maybe he's, maybe he's thinking, he's musing. Or maybe he's relieving himself. You know what that means. Maybe your God has to take a potty break and can't listen to your prayers right now. So Elijah was, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe the, the sign on his front door is out to lunch. Be right back. Perhaps he's asleep. And he must be awakened. Louder, guys. Hear us, bail Louder! Louder! Blow your horns! Wake them up! And they cried aloud, verse 28, and cut themselves after, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. You might have nicked yourself nicked yourself shaving with a razor but how about a dull lance from ancient israel (sniffs) you know the bible god never calls us to hurt ourselves for him because it wouldn't produce anything we could never make up for anything so jesus takes all the pain but this they're trying everything they can what if i what if i bleed what if i what if i show them show bail how desperately i need him And then the depressing verse at the end of 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Guess why? Because there's no one there. It's all in your head, this Baal stuff. He doesn't provide fertility for the land, Yahweh does. But you, for your own reasons, your own selfish reasons, create your own idols so you can do what you want to do. And at the end of the day, it's about you. And so Elijah taunts them, underscoring how idols can't help you. And the message rings clear for today: that you and I don't erect build idols and Asherah poles, but but we worship things, and we worship ideas, and we worship. Stuff. And Elijah taunts, why don't you pursue money a little bit more? Why don't you get another job and make more of it? Until you get to that point point, you realize, man, it doesn't matter how much money I make, money can't answer my prayers. It's deaf and dumb and mute. It's not God. You, know, you thought, you know, family, your life is about your family. And maybe if I have more kids and what if I have grandkids and what if I have great grandkids and live long enough? Family can't secure your future. Your girlfriend can't cure your depression. Your hobbies can't provide that bedrock joy that you need through pain. And so all the things that you pursue, all the time that you invest in, all these different things that take the place of God in your heart, give you nothing. There's no return on that investment. So he mocks them so they can see that, so they can see how ridiculous this is. And then verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. It's my turn. I think it's interesting what he says. <clears throat> All the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as wood, contain two sears of seed. Elijah, he doesn't just throw some rocks together. He picks 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he does that because this is a people that bear the name that the Lord gave them. Israel shall be your name. And he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Elijah doesn't just want to just throw something up on the altar and call fire down and say, See? Yahweh is the true powerful God. The way he's doing it is he's reclaiming their identity. He's saying, this is, this is who you are. You are Israel. Let's get this straight first. God has called you, given you a name, and has called you to worship him by name. It says you're bearers of God's name. We find ourselves trapped in the pursuit and the love of money. God's saying, that's not you. You're stuck in a mode of people-pleasing, but that's not what I created you for. You're trying to make a name for yourself, but I, I made you, I created you to make a name for me. And so your life is supposed to be about God worship. And you're pursuing other things. That's not you. So then he stacks the odds in verses 33 to 35 to make it, a little bit bigger of a statement. He put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Remember, the test is fire is going to come. He's trying to make it impossible for fire to just be sparked up through some kid's magnifying glass in the crowd or something. Verse 34, he said, do it a second time. Pour water on it again. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. That's... Soaked, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Do You see, the purpose of this whole competition is not just God showing off his power, but with that last line, Lord, show that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. God is not concerned with turning our religious practices back to him. God is not concerned with taking our exterior display of emotions and turning those back to him. He's concerned with turning your hearts back to him. So from this day forward, he doesn't want them to just offer sacrifices to him and stop offering sacrifices to Baal. He wants that inward change in your heart to recognize that no matter how much money I have, that's not my God. No matter what, boyfriend i have that is not going to take the place of my pursuit of christ no matter what kind of marriage i have no matter how many kids i have in my family i love my family my family is precious to me it's precious to god but that cannot take the place of god i love baseball i go to games and i go to this but that can never crowd out the time that i spend for god he wants our hearts to be in that place not just our calendar where we try to map out, okay, if I do this many quiet times and this many, but I only look at fantasy football this many times, and that equals out, so I think I'm okay. Your heart. Your heart, not your calendar. And hopefully the heart affects the time that we spend doing things. And then look at how this episode ends. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. We weren't really expecting this story to end with massacre. But why does it end like this? Why does it... It ends with the people, their hearts turning back to God resulted in confession and murder, killing, slaughter, Why? Because you have to eliminate the voices in your world that would seek to sell you on idols. You see, they're prone to limping. They have a proclivity to go back and forth. There's this this ingrained thing about the way they live, the way they are, that makes them prone to go back and forth, wavering between two opinions. And as long as those prophets of Baal and Asher are around, they'll always be that voice calling Israel back, calling them to go back to the old ways, calling them to go, you can worship him, but worship this too. We're not asking you for soul worship. That's Yahweh that's asking you for soul worship. That's the exclusive non-tolerant God. We're about tolerance. Worship this God, that God, this God, that God. It's okay. And as long as those voices are around, Israel would never be able to focus on God's exclusive claim to the throne of our hearts. And so it's not enough to respond to God's call when he draws that line in the sand and says, choose me or choose that. You can't do both. It's not enough to just confess, you know what, God, you're right. You are the true God to turn your hearts away from that other thing, to really cross that line. You've got to put to death those other voices in your life that will call you back to the nonsense of the futility of idol worship. That doesn't mean you go murder your buddy at work that keeps asking why you quit smoking. But it does mean that you need to guard yourself against the voices that you allow to speak to you. And God demands a decision. In Joshua twenty four, fifteen, Joshua looked at Israel and said, Look, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the that your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This way or that way. You can't have both. Jesus drew a line in the sand. When he said in Matthew 6 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, the, the money God is not an American issue. It's a universal one. God wants to expose the desperation of our of our idolatry, he wants to expose the futility of it. It has it shows nothing for itself. And he wants to show you that there's a line, there's a line, there's a fence, and you can't straddle it. A guy told me once, while well, talking about whether he wanted to come to Jesus or not, he said, well, I'm on the fence. I said, no, you're not. You could be real pressed up against the fence, but you can't straddle this fence, bro. You're on one side or the other, and right now you're finding yourself on the wrong side. There's no one foot in and one foot out. You're in or you're out. If you're on the wrong side of worship this morning, there's a line. God is saying, choose who you will serve. How long will you go limping between two different gods in your life? If the Lord is God, follow Him. I want to prepare our hearts for communion this morning by asking us to comp- contemplate that. Allow the Spirit to to search you, examine you, and it's gonna take work because I can't provide all the examples of what idols look like in our day and age. But it doesn't matter what it is, it could be it could be crocheting, it could be watching TV, it could be exercise. But behind that is the God is not the blanket that you knitted. It's something else about how you want to spend your time, and you enjoy doing it, and you have a fixation on it. And so at the end of the day, it's about you. And it it's not so much about the, the game or the sports, but it's how you want to spend your time, or maybe it it takes your mind away from work. And so sports is a little escape for you. And the reason why you want to do it is because it makes you feel good, it makes you feel better after a hard day at work. And at the end of that line, it's you. And so it doesn't matter if it's money or career or family or hobbies. At the end of the rope, our idols are ourselves. God is calling you away from that because when you worship yourself, you get nothing in return. And when you worship God, you experience that full life. You experience that abundant life that he wants to call you to. And you can't experience that if you're limping between two different opinions. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in all these other things I pursue. Yes, I want to pursue God. Yes, I want to pursue other things. He draws a line in the sand. So if you step over here, that means you turn your hearts away from those other things that have pulled you away from me for far too long. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and and Mike to approach the piano. And I want us to take a couple of moments um, while these elements are being passed um, with a... Little reminder that communion is not about, it's just not snack time. In the ancient church, in the early church, they treated it like mealtime. And they were elbowing each other at the table trying to get the bigger pieces of bread, trying to get the better wine. Apostle, let me remind you something. This is not snack time. You're not a bunch of little kids in kindergarten. This is a symbol of Christ's spilled blood, a symbol of Christ, broken body. So when you take it, you're saying, I recognize, God, that you draw a line in the thing. And when I take this, I'm saying, I'm standing for you. I'm, I'm going to live my life to serve you. And I turn my back on all those other things that pull me away. So if, A, you've not made a decision for Christ, communion is not for you to take. Paul said, when you do that, you read judgment on yourself. B, communion is not for believers who sense that there's something wedged between them and God. God is calling you out on something, and you're not dealing with it. Don't take it. Don't take communion. But if you're here this morning and you recognize that God is calling you out on something, and you want God to change your life, to be your sole exclusive object of worship in your life. And asking for his grace to leave these doors living that way. And take communion, not because you're thirsty or because you're hungry, you take it. Because you're, you're ingesting what Christ has done for you. It's a symbol of owning it. So as we pass these out, I want you to consider those things. And pray that God will move your heart into the right place of (coughs) confession and repentance so you can take with us this morning.